Hospitality Meets is brought to you by Rotacloud, the people management platform for hospitality teams. With its intuitive drag-and-drop rota planner and built-in budgeting tools, Rotacloud users spend an average of 66% less time on staffing-related admin, leaving them with more time to spend with their customers, train staff, or simply take a well-earned break. Head over to rotacloud.com forward slash fill to explore Rotacloud's full range of tools and features and sign up for your 30-day free trial. Welcome to Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street, where each week we take a light-hearted look into the stories and individuals that make up the wonderful world of hospitality. Today's guest is Jose Suto, Senior Chef Lecturer in Culinary Arts at Westminster Kingsway College and Master of All Things Game. Coming up on today's show, Jose talks about goats. But if you've got a trailer full of goats and you open the door, they all go different ways. Phil starts his own cookery show. So to make this soup, you will need one, two, three, four, five ingredients. Go. And Jose recounts an out-of-depth moment. You can edit this out, but I shit myself. All that and so much more as Jose chats us through his epic journey so far. Jose has had one hell of a career so far, taking him to places such as the House of Commons to now taking on the not insignificant task of inspiring the next generation of chefs for the industry. More than that, there's more than enough in here for you, even if you have a remote interest about food and its provenance. And I get the feeling that what Jose doesn't know about food is not worth knowing. One final thing before we get into it, and I know I go on about this, but if you can take two secs to subscribe to the show and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts, it really makes a huge difference. Enjoy. And a huge hospitality meets. Welcome to Jose Suto. Have I got that right? Yep, that's it. That's right. Perfect. That, that's the first time for everything. But, um, how are you? Good, good. Yeah, good. Warm, hot. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's sometimes that's great, right? And then sometimes you're just like, oh, can we just get the air conditioning now? Well, I've been at work for the last uh, two weeks, with basically every day, because we've got the exams uh, happening at the moment. So spare a thought for the kids that are doing all their exams at the moment. So four yeah. or five hour exams. Well, actually, six hour exam yesterday, because it's a diploma. Right. Um, and today I had a few meetings here at home, a few basically sort of like uh, Teams meetings as well. And this, so yeah that's, yeah, that's why I'm at home. I mean, this is the highlight of your day, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no comment. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, well, just tell the world who you are and what it is that you do. So my name is uh, Jose Suto. Uh, I'm a senior chef lecturer at Westminster Kingsway College. I run basically the butchery side of it. So the butchery, all the fishmongery, fish prep, game prep, um, all that sort of stuff that comes into the whole of the college. Um, that's for all three years and all our part-time and our apprenticeships. As well as that, um, I'm fairly well known for basically doing game um, outside the college as well as inside the college. I've done a few bits and pieces in my time on the game side. And yeah, that, that's it. That's me. Yeah. And to be clear, we're talking about uh, game in animal sense, not yeah. just a general sense of PlayStation or board games, if they, if no. they even still my, exist, board games. My, my 15-year-old would probably be that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wicked. Okay. Well, I mean, before there was what you do now, there was obviously a pathway to, to you getting to that point. So take us all the way back to the, the beginning. How did you get into hospitality in the first place? Um. It was by accident. I mean, to tell you the truth, I, I know, you know, with, with other chefs that you've had in here, basically they talk about, you know, how they were from a very young age and loved to cook and all that sort of stuff. I did, but that wasn't at the forefront of what I wanted to do. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, at school, I wasn't the most academic kid in the class. You know, I was sort of like pretty much middle of the road. And when most kids sort of like uh, in the sixth form and stuff like that, they knew what they wanted to do. I, I was still a bit sort of, 
fluffy as to what I wanted to do. I didn't understand what I wanted to do. And then um, by sheer chance, uh, my parents are both Spanish. So we both basically came from Spain. And I I speak uh, fluent Spanish as well. Speak a little bit of Italian, a little bit of French, you know, a little bit of all the Latin-based languages, if you like. Yeah, a little bit of Cockney and, in there as well. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah English is the worst language I speak out of the three. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, my um, my father was a uh, head waiter and he worked at some quite good places in London. He worked at a lot of the casinos, uh, people, places like the Crawfords, Crockford, sorry, uh, the Barracuda and Aspinall's. He, he, worked, he was basically worked up there. And then when he finished at Aspinall's, his last job that he worked of was um, at the Ritz. And he was the head waiter. So they basically had a head waiter and a manager that were in charge of the Trafalgar Suite. And Trafalgar Suite is basically set up at the Ritz for looking after all of their VVIP guests. So back then it was like when, you know, Francois Mitterrand and, and like Reagan and all those sorts of people and you know, Gorbachev were coming over for the G7 summits. Um, they would go and have breakfast at the Ritz, you know, in this very plush, beautiful room that overlooks basically uh, Regent's Park. Is it Regent's Park? No, it's not Regent's Park. Park. Yeah, Park. Green, Green Park. A oh, Green Park, but you're yeah, yeah. Green Park. Looks it overlooks Green Park. We have a beautiful balcony on there. And these guys would basically, that's where they'd be. And that's where they'd get looked after. All the people, yeah, when Cunard owned, owned the Ritz, basically all the top bosses there. And my, my dad and the head, the, the manager, basically looked after everybody. That, that was their thing to look after everyone. So... My dad was sort of fairly well known in the industry. And then uh, what happened was he had a, a childhood friend uh, who grew up together in a small village in northern Spain where they grew up. And they both did their military service and went out into the wide world. Um, and, you know, both coming from a very, very small village, they got a bit of the wanderlust um, once they got out of the village, you know, because basically seeing everything else. And um, one of them, Armando, which is my dad's friend, um, he ended up basically going to Madrid. And then from Madrid, he ended up working as a captain steward on Iberia Airlines. And when uh, when we were living in London, he'd come over and visit us and he'd bring his kids and his wife and they'd come over and stop off at ours and they'd be off to you know New York or they'd be off to San Francisco or Taiwan or wherever they were going. And they had some great holidays. And I was thinking to myself, Jesus Christ, you know, I could do this, travel the world and do this sort of stuff. And because I had the second language, it was pretty much you know a done thing. Mm-hmm. So I, I spoke to him about it. Um, when I was leaving school and I was sort of thinking, you know, I'd really like to give this a go. And he said, yeah, no problem. He said, how old are you? And I told him how old he was. He went, you're a bit young yet. He said, so I'll tell you what. He said, go to catering college for a year. He said, uh, do a catering course. He said, and basically it will all stand you in really, really good stead for doing working on the airlines. So I thought, okay, well, I'll go and do that. So my dad, my dad was a little bit against it because he, he didn't want, his kids going into the hospitality industry, you know, it was seen as hard work and, you know, it, it, he really wanted something better for us. But, you know, I had, a, I, I started really looking forward to it. And he said, okay, so if you're going to go to anywhere, you're going to go to the best college in the country, which still is now Westminster. Right. So I applied, I got two places. I got a place on the BTEC course and I got a place on the uh, diploma course, the, the chef's diploma. And out of the two, I wasn't really looking at the Chef Avenue. I was pretty much looking at the BTEC, you know, front of house avenue, management. That's the sort of thing I wanted to look at. And so um, I turned up at college. I remember on the first day. Back then, um, your uniforms used to get sent to college and they were wrapped up in this big brown paper bag thing, right, which looked like something that you were being conscripted into the army or something, you know, (laughs) like that. Um, And uh, I got got there and I I got to the first class and it was a BTEC class, and the lecturer sort of said to me, well, your name's not on the list. 
And I said, well, I've, I've, you know, I've got my paperwork here. I showed him all the paperwork. And he went, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, we're oversubscribed for the BTEC. He said, so you've been put on the National Chef's Diploma. Now, that was horrific to me, you know, because right, I yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going from basically this avenue where I was going to be quite comfortable working front of house and that sort of thing to now working as a chef, you know, with a little bit of front of house. And so um, I, I was a bit sort of traumatized in my first few days of college, you know, wearing chef whites and basically getting into the kitchen. But I did like cooking at home. And my mum's a brilliant cook and obviously lots of Spanish food and stuff like that. But my mum was also very, um, you know, very uh, innovative with basically food and, and fusion and, you know, that sort of stuff. So you used to cook, cook quite a lot of uh, British dishes as well as basically Greek dishes and all sorts of stuff, you know, that we tried at home. Mm. Our palates were quite open to all that sort of stuff. So... I, I uh, for the first week or so, I was horrified. And then afterwards, I sort of eased into it. And then the first few tests came through and I was doing really well. You know, I was getting top marks. You know, there was a there was me and basically a few other guys that were basically in the in the class. And some, some quite well-known guys now. They're out there. Gary Klonger, who is the executive head chef of the... Um, Landmark. Landmark, yeah. Gary yeah. Klonger, Landmark. Well, Gary was a college master. Oh, I've still got it. I've still got it. <laughs> so he's, yeah, he's there. He's, so he's basically, he was at college with me and we were in the, in the same class. Um, and then there was other people like a guy called Blair Smithhurst, who Blair was basically development chef at m for quite a while. He was the head development chef for them. And then he went out to Australia. Now I think he's a global head of foods for Nando's. I think he is basically. So, yeah, so, so people that, you know, so we, we, and I was doing his, you know, top of the class, you know, getting great marks, you know, really put, enjoying what I was doing. And I, I say this to parents now that come and bring students to us. I'd found my thing, you know, and some of these kids that come to us that are in the same sort of limbo as I was and their parents don't know what to do. And then they come to us and within the first year, they see a massive change in them. You know, they, they the kids are into what they're doing. They're loving it they're getting up early in the morning when they you know used to have to leave them out of bed they're not worried about what time they get home when they get home they're cooking you know and bringing the home work home with them and these kids have found their thing and that's what happened to me i found my thing and um yeah it went on really well i had some great lecturers who basically worked with me michael hollingsworth and and i loved it and after the first year i was invited to come back to the second year, which is what happens now. You know, you, they look at all your results, they look at the thing and you get invited back to do the second year or they say to you, look, it's not for you or come back part-time or or whatever, you know, or look for another avenue. But for me, yeah, I was invited to come back. So I came back in the second year and basically were, what the kids I think now do in about three years, we did in two years. And then the third year was like a, a more of a management side of what our third year is like now, but we did it part-time. And so I did that. I did two years at college, got phenomenal marks, um, in the first six months doing the college, I was doing competitions and basically got through to the national finals. And, you know, I, yeah, I, I loved it. Um, and I really never looked back. I mean, since then, the opportunities have basically sort of like opened up for me. When I left college, I went to work abroad in Spain and I worked in Puerto Banus, which, which uh, I don't know if people know, but it's basically sort of like the French Riviera of Spain. Um, it's where all the expensive yachts are and all that sort of stuff. And I worked there for a while, a hotel there, a restaurant, sorry, there. And I did basically two, three months there in that restaurant. Then I moved from that restaurant to another restaurant. It was a case of basically I'd left college. My parents had a flat in Spain, so didn't have to pay any rent. So I basically went out there yeah. and went and worked a couple of different places to learn. So uh, I did another few months at another restaurant, which was the first restaurant was more more seafood orientated. And then the second restaurant was more meat orientated and barbecues and big grills and stuff like that. And um, 
learned a lot about ingredients from different parts of Spain, learned a lot, not so much, it wasn't so much classical food, you know, it's a very Spanish orientated food, but very good quality, high level. Um, and then when I came back from Spain, I went to, uh, I basically was, I didn't have a job in view. Um, and I went and worked for Transport for London's head office. So basically their head office was above 55 the Broadway and they had director's dining rooms there, uh, which were private dining rooms and there were six dining rooms and a restaurant. And it was all for the directors of what is London Regional Transport now. And uh, they um, you know, had a fantastic kitchen. You know, budget was no option, no, no problem. And we, I worked there for a little while. And then while I was there, I was... Some of my friends were working at the House of Commons and then I got asked if I uh, I would apply um, for the House of Commons. So I applied for the House of Commons and got a job at the House of Commons. Okay, I came in as a uh, as a first commie and they had five grades of commie, um, a bit opposite to basically the way it works in hotels. So you started as commie one and then you worked your way out to commie five. And sometimes you, when you get to commie three, you would skip them and basically you may become basically a senior chef to party or, or a demi chef to party or whatever. Mm. I worked my way up and uh, I was at the Commons for... Uh, I think about 11 years and while we were at the commons we had these um these stages which we used to do because we had quite a lot of the recesses basically the way the recesses work is they alternate us to basically work the recesses so we were offered stages and I, I went and worked at um the intercontinental park lane uh for a few months with uh when peter cromberg was still there lovely man really really nice man and fantastic learned a lot from him uh, I worked at um, Mosterman's uh, in Belgravia. Uh, nice. Loved yeah. that as well. Yeah, lo- again, lovely person. Yeah, even when I see Anton now, yeah, even all those years ago, I only spent sort of like, I don't know, two months, three months with him. He still remembers me, remembers my name. It's the nice thing about Anton, whenever you meet him, he remembers everybody's name. Right. Such a gentleman. That's um, um, I, That place is remarkable. The um, When you walk in, even to this day, and the photos of everyone that he's met in the lifetime of uh, either at Mossimans itself or, or pre that. Um, and the attention to detail there and the, yeah. the calmness of the kitchen, because when I went there, it was a very calm kitchen. And, you know, and I right. think Anton, um, he uses that, that calmness, that knowledge. He's a great, he's a great teacher and a, and a great, um, you know, he, he sees uh, more than one occasion. I've seen him sort of come through the kitchen and he'd see a particular type of ingredients or something, and he'd he'd go over and he'd say, "Oh, yeah, this is such and such." And I remember one day we were doing rabbits uh, for a dish that he had. I think it was a terrine or something. And we were butchering the rabbits, and he saw the rabbits. He came over and he gathered everyone round, and he started telling stories about when he was in Switzerland and the rabbits and preparing them off the farm and all this sort of stuff. Much to the horror horror of the of the uh, the uh, sous chefs, right? Who had basically a service starting, right? And they're all standing in the background, like yeah, yeah. fighting their nails. Come on, let's go. <laughs> But um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, great, and and the stories he told and everything was great, and and then I also worked at the uh, Savoy Grill, um, and at the Ritz for a little while. So basically, yeah, I I I, I sort of moved around a lot basically in that period. That that the House of Commons allowed you to do that. House of Commons is one of the best training grounds uh, for any young chef. I mean, I, but even nowadays, I mean, they, the opportunities they have in there, um, the time you have to learn um, and do courses and stuff like that is brilliant. I mean, I did a master fishmongery course and a march and butchery course while I was there. So basically it was, it was really, really good. So right. yeah, and that pretty much brings me up to now to the, to the, uh, to the college and the college came again by accident. One of the guys that worked with me at the commons had left and he went to, well, he, he was at the college doing a teacher training course because the commons was thinking about starting up a little educational part of what we did. And what we, the way they started up at first is they got all of the senior chefs by then I was a 
junior sous chef basically to work to do um some sort of training for the uh demi chefs and chefs the parties and the commies so you had to pick a subject and then do a training course and they wanted to head this up with one of the guys that was basically a lecturer you know that basically was qualified as lecturer and, and Steve Warpole, who's still a good friend of mine, Steve Warpole basically went to go and do that course. And then he um, he loved college, you know, when he was doing his teacher training course. And then he did his course. And at the end of it, a little while later, he decided to leave and go to college. And uh, he rang me sort of while I was away. And he sort of said to me, um, one of the things that I taught back at the Commons was game. And I'd written a little booklet all on game, yeah, for the, uh, uh, for the, the chefs that we had that we were teaching. And so he asked me to come into the college and do a presentation on game to the kids at the college. And they'd never done it before because game was something sort of like that was on the peripheries of the, you know, of what was being taught. It was sort of like level three advance and nobody really did it in any detail, you know. And on top of that, it was also buried under lots of you know, old recipes, unforgiving recipes, recipes with loads of juniper and stuff like that. Very old fashioned. And um what I was doing was very different and also to understand, I've always been a great a chef that understands about, basically wants to understand about provenance, wants to understand about where food comes from, wants to understand the story of food. So then I can better, you know, tell people about it and better educate people and also sell it better on my menus, you know, giving provenance to it. Yeah. And also to ensure that I'm using a sustainable product, you know, basically of what I'm doing. That was the beginnings of all the sort of sustainability side. So I went and did this presentation uh, Gary Hunter was there. He was basically the head of school at the time. And he came and spoke to me and sort of said to me, um, have you ever thought of teaching? And I said, well, not really. I said, I sort of have, you know, all chefs are teachers. We're all natural teachers because we all teach the guys basically on the section how to do something. Yeah. And we're all natural teachers. So I thought, thought about it. And then he asked me to come into the college on, uh, you know, in the after if I was finishing early, cause we had, cause we did shift work. Sometimes on Friday we'd finish early. So on the Fridays I finished early, I went to the college and, you know, spent a few hours basically in different sections looking at what they were doing. And then uh, one of the lecturers basically was on a long-term sick and uh, he, um, Gary said, I've got a position. If you would like to have the position, he said, you can, I was allowed to take a sabbatical from the, from the commons. So I did, I took a three month sabbatical from the commons and I went to work at the college. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, I absolutely loved what I did there. Learned lots of new things. I mean, I, I've never really done butchery. Yeah, you know, I did a course at the Commons, but at the Commons, I didn't work in the butchery. I've never done fishmongery. I've never done any of that. I've always been a basically sort of kitchen larder chef. And when I went to the college, I was learning lots of stuff that I I, I sort of knew, but I didn't really know it that well and, and honing all my talents on that and how to do things. And so um, after three months sabbatical, I went back to the Commons and it's it, it sort of pretty evident, you know, when I walked through the doors of the commons that I didn't want to be there anymore. Not because I don't like, I didn't like it or anything like that. It's just that I suppose with every chef, there comes a time when you go to the extent of how far you're going to go and you can't get any further. And, you know, a, a job's what you make it. And at the Commons, it's very difficult to basically sort of to reinvent what you're doing all the time or to try and to come up with new ideas because if you're quite, you know, you're quite suppressed in what you do. You've got this sort of like this uh, um, audience that's in there. You know, they're there. They've got to eat in there. You know, and and so, you know, and that's not derogatory of the Commons or it, or it's it, the way it works or anything like that. It's just for me, it was stifling what I was doing. So I thought, okay, well, Gary said, well, 
he rang me and he sort of said to me, oh, the guy that was on long-term sick left. So there was a position opening. Could I come in for an interview? So uh, I said, yeah, well, yeah, I'd like to come in for an interview. And he asked me to come in an interview the following day at 12 o'clock. Well, I was starting service at 12 o'clock. So <laughs> there's no way I was going to go at 12 o'clock. So he said, okay, what time do you finish work? So I said, oh, I'll finish up at half past three. And he said, we'll see you at four o'clock. So I walked from the commons down to the college to school, did my interview. Not that far. No, it's not that far. It's only around the corner. Um, Did my interview, did a skills test, did a presentation to a load of kids um, and uh, then sat down to uh, a board of people, which basically just fired loads of questions at me. And um, I think three, four days later, I got the phone call that I got it. And uh, that was, I hate to say, 20 years ago. The rest (laughs) is history. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was there a, a point in all of that? Because that's a, I suppose it's not what you set out to do, right? That's not, no. it wasn't in the original plan, if no. there was at this point even a plan. No. Was there a, a, a part of you that, that thought this could be risky? Or there's a part that thought this is, I don't know where this is going to lead to or, or anything like that? Or was it, this is just too cool to not give it a go? Um. I had sleepless nights over it, yeah, and right. I, before I actually even said yes to the job, uh, yes, whiskey, you can edit this out, but I shit myself. No, <laughs> I wouldn't edit that out. That's... <laughs> uh, I, I didn't, I, I'm quite a conservative person. I, I'll, I, I like change. I like learning new things, and I, I'm very quick to adapt onto new things and change if I can see a benefit from it. I'm not a person that um, is stuck in any rut in the way that basically, you know, we do it this way because this is the way we've always done it, always, always done it. And there's no other way of doing it. Now I'm open to ideas if I can see why, but I'm, I, I, I want to know why, you know, I want to know the ins and outs of basically why that's going to be better for me and try to understand it and then adapt it and take it and use it. You know, And um, obviously going from what I was doing to teaching was a big jump. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I had, about a week's worth of, of basically, you know, worrying about it. I had a friend of mine who was uh, a guy who's, um, he was a chef many moons ago. He was retired now. And uh, I rang him up and I sort of said to him, oh, a friend of mine called Derek Stotton. And I said to Derek, I said, oh, yeah, this has happened. I've been offered this job. And it, there was all that deadly science on the phone. And, and I said, you still there? And he went, yeah. And I said, what's the problem? And I went, well, I don't know. And he, and he went, shut up. And he, just, he screamed down the phone at me. Like, he said, you're being an idiot. He said, like, think about the opportunities that this will bring open to you. You know, think about what you'd be doing and make the job it yourself. But I, I think one of the reasons why I was a bit worried about it was because back then it was sort of, you know, college was seen as the elephant graveyard, you know, that basically all these shit, great chefs would come to it, right? And they sort of waddled in and, you know, they sort of went there to die, you know, and yeah, there was a pile of ivory. A, in the an end of career role, as it were. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A pile of ivory or a pile of, pile of chef's hats in the corner of the guys that had gone yeah. before you. But it's not like that. It wasn't like that. And I was quite young coming into it, you know, and and, and Steve was quite young as well. So we're both quite dynamic and, and, and we, we wanted to adapt change and look at new things and change what was there, you know, to try and best suit and best teach the kids that we have coming, you know, but, the whole thing has been about basically what can we teach the kids better? What more can we teach them? How being a chef has changed within the last sort of 30 years. 30 years ago, you're a chef, you cooked. That was it, you know. 
now you're an agony aunt, you're an accountant, you know, you, you, you've got to understand chemistry, you've got to understand basically health and safety to, to a much higher level than, than 30 years ago that you need to mm. understand it. So, and also, you are, to a certain extent, depending on where you get to, people's conscience, you know, with the food that they eat and health and all that sort of stuff. Because people look at you that what you put on your menu is a good quality product that is ethical and sustainable. You know, and you've got to be able to basically say why. And and those sorts of things are the things that I wanted to bring to the party, if you like, you know, all that sort of stuff, giving them their, their feedback, their background, their provenance, their understanding of what it was, giving them those little snippets of information that nobody knew that they could grasp onto and think, oh, God, that's a great bit of information to to give to kids. Because I think with kids, when you when you teach them, especially with chefs as well, when you show a chef something, if you can give him that little bit of information that's that's quirky, you know, they'll remember what you've taught them for the rest of their lives because that's how they learn. Most chefs are, are very sort of like tactile learners, you know, and, and auditory learners that basically you're told. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember when I was at the at the college one day, we were doing classifications of soups, and one of the lecturers, uh, Colin Stone, who was teaching me, and that day we were doing classification of soups, and he, he was teaching us all about the classifications. And he got to this soup called creme solferino, which is a very classical soup, right? And uh, it's a French soup. And the creme solferino is based, is named after the Battle of Solferino. And in the Battle of Solferino, what happened is that the French were completely outnumbered and the English were chasing them. And they went into this great big gorge. And in the gorge, they because they were outnumbered, they, they're outfired as well, their firepower completely. So what the French did is they set themselves up on one side of the gorge. And as the English came running through the gorge, they bombarded the walls of the gorge and they created sort of like an avalanche of all these rocks down there that killed a lot of the English army and won them the battle. And then so Napoleon's basically chef came up with this soup to basically for the battle and it's called creme solferino. And in creme solferino, it's a half potato, half tomato soup. And in the in there, there are carrot balls, which are carrot balls signified basically the cannon. Um, right. And the white balls of potato, which signify the rocks that came falling down. And though that little snippet of information has stayed with me for the last 40 years, it's a completely useless piece of information. But I remember all my classifications were sick because of it. So Yeah, but also, I suppose in, in some way, it kind of maybe informs the, the type of teacher you become because you're, you're, you're actually, you can teach somebody a recipe through the medium of visualization you know, or through history or whatever it, it might look like. And these little things are the things that, that probably your your students remember themselves and they walk away from and, and you yeah. know because you've not just had somebody go so to make this soup you will need one yeah, yeah. two three four five ingredients go kind of thing yeah and it's you yeah, know definitely. it's soulless and uninspiring isn't it well I'd, I'd hope that they'd go away and be telling that story to other people the same way if i've told it to you the same way if i've told it a hundred times to loads of other people yeah yeah you know, and and that that story but then the cat that came off the back of that is the remembering of the classifications of soup, you know, all of the ones that basically what they were and how they were and how it worked and all that sort of stuff. And that's what I try to do with our kids is I try to, you know, give them those, those visual, you know, looks at what, what we're doing and showing them different stuff, explaining things to them, going into a little bit more detail than they would have actually gone through. Um, so that they, their, their learning outcomes are a lot higher than, than what we, I mean, we, 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 we have this thing we call the Westminster way which means that the curriculum basically tells us to teach sort of like that much, you know, and we teach that much, you know, because we want to fulfill them in what they're doing. Our, my, my section within the college 
the butchery section is, is, is an expensive section to run. And the college would possibly, possibly save a lot of money by just basically buying everything in prep and then giving the kids just these little plastic boxes with the portions of food that they need to cook and the stuff that the restaurant needs. But then they wouldn't be getting all of this extra teaching. You know, we wouldn't yeah. be aging all our own beef. We wouldn't be basically taking four ribs down into steaks or into coke the births. We wouldn't be making our own smoked salmons. We wouldn't be making our own bacon and ham and all that sort of stuff. You know, and all those things basically have opened a job. that world up. Huh? I want a job. That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. But that, but that, I suppose, and how you can't really put a price on how valuable that is at this stage of their career to learn as well. Because, you know, let's face it, if whatever their plan is, whatever they want to become, the more you can give them in that moment, they'll also, it'll, they're probably going to get to the end point of what their identity is in, in terms of what mm -hmm. they find interesting in cooking and all of that. And they've got a, a, probably a much greater chance of success, I'd say. I have no doubt that, and, and it has happened, you know, that our, that the kids that we're teaching at some point will be on television or in a position where they are moving food trends. And they need to understand the consequences of the, of, of the ingredients that they're using. They need to understand where their ingredients come from. If there is a problem with the production of that ingredient, if there is uh, a health problem with that ingredients, you know, they need to understand all of that because they're going to be questioned on it. You know, I, I, I have no doubt that somewhere along the lines, we'll have the next Jamie Oliver basically at the college again, and we will have taught him. And then he's going to go on to, you know, what I don't want to see him is him basically go on to Saturday Kitchen or James Martin, you know, one morning. And then be cooking a, a bluefin tuna steak and telling everybody how fantastic it is, yeah? And then have a barrage of people basically have a go at him because it's an endangered species and they shouldn't be using it. Mm. They should understand the background and the provenance of it. And if there is an argument about something, because sometimes also what happens with food is that people can be sort of argumentative to the point where by saying, Black, I'm not using that because of this. And it's because they're not educated in what it is about the product. So once you become educated about the product, you understand all of the pros and cons and what it's about and that stuff, then you can basically give an opinion. But you, what you can't do is basically just fall into this rut. It's because he said so, I'm not going to use it. Yeah, yeah you need to tell them why and, tell, yeah. and explain all of that. And, and you know, there, there's plenty of times where people basically have questioned me on my use of product. You know, that. I mean, I, um, I'll give you an example. We have a guinea fowl that come into the college. Um, I, I said, when I came into the college, and I started working in the butchery full time. I said we didn't have a, a statement for the produce that we use, you know, a statement of ethical buying and uh, and sustainability, um, which was obviously becoming more and more important. And so I wrote a statement of ethical buying and sustainability uh, for the college. And um, that's available to our customers and all the kids have got it. You know, it's all on their on their Moodle pages and so they can read it. And it says why we use independent different things that we buy why we use certain things and why we don't use other things yeah and it explains it all to them we gone to the point as well where in our second year uh, in theory lessons we have a whole lesson it's just all about ethical farming and ethical buying and ethical production of food you know talking about veal you know as opposed to english rose veal the two differences between the two yeah and explaining it not saying one's better than the other just explaining it to them and saying right these this is the this is how it works okay now, you as an individual, you need to basically say to yourself, do I want to be using Dutch veal or do I know English rose veal is the way to go? Basically, that's that's you know, the the ethical side of it, the farming side of it, you know, everything about it. That's a much better product. So that's the one that we need to be using. 
and we need to educate people about that one yeah and move away from that one guinea fowl another one we had we when i first came to the college right we'd buy a french guinea fowl in and a lot of them opinioned so people that don't know what they're pinioning is on the end of the wing where where you've got a bird's wing you've got one bone that comes up like that and the other bone goes and there's a little bone that comes on the end and that little bone what they do is when they're chicks they take a pair of scissors and they cut it off they cut straight through the bone and what that does is it means the birds have got one wing longer than the other so they can't go up into trees so they can be free range but they can't fly up into trees at night so they'll basically go into the houses and all that sort of stuff so you're mutilating a bird at a very early age for your own benefit so you can call it free range so then it's basically you put it on the menu as free range yeah that is a real that, yeah. that just doesn't work sit well with me so that's that sort of thing you know question about that sort of stuff and, and why why we shouldn't use it and then right down to the sustainability side i mean like we we started doing all the sustainability stuff at the college way before a lot of other colleges started doing it well you know we we, we set up a sustainability setup for the college which um the guild of fishmongers looked at and they basically gave us a grade a class uh, stamp on it saying how good it was and that's because we were trying to get the kids to understand about sustainability and about using you know spreading the load of basically the fish that we were buying not buying one particular fish all the time to basically putting too much basically pressure on those fish understanding about alternative fishes that can be used sustainable alternative fishes understanding about the grading system that basically goes with fish and where to find it you know where can they find it where can they find that information so that later on in life if they are writing menus and they need to be sustainable, they can go and look up and they understand all the pros and cons and where to find that information so that they can put together their own menus that are sustainable and ethical. Yeah. So, well, here, here's a question I thought I'd never ask on this podcast because this is, uh, this is uh, we're going to move into educational now with, with this question. That's a good setup, isn't it? If I could have got my words out. Um, what fish right now are considered to be sustainable? Um, it depends on basically what, what you're looking for. I mean, it, it, what we try to do is what we do is we basically put, we work with closely with our fishmongers. Uh, we have a sustainability system, which is set up, which is basically we have uh, grades of fish. So each of the fish are graded. Now I use the uh, Marine Conservation Society's basically grading system. So with them, what they do, you look at the basic, they're set up, they have their number, their fish from one to five. So number one being the most sustainable option. And that'll be things like, well, you know, when we talk about farmed fish, well-farmed fish, so basically things like sea bass, bream, you know, some of those sort of things. Uh, Arctic chard is another one, um, all those sorts of ones. And they'll be like a grade one. Yeah, they're very sustainable things. A lot of it about um, sustainable, very well-farmed, you know, the managed, well-managed farms, basically, if they're farmed. If it's a wild fish, again, you know, lots of it about, you know, and basically taking it. Then we have a grade two fish, which is basically on the verge of being, there, there are management issues with some of the ways in which those fish are captured. Yeah, which you need to look at. So basically with a grade two, it's still a sustainable fish option to use. Yeah, but you've got to keep an eye on basically how that grading changes throughout the years. We we, we change our grading every three, every six months. Uh, sorry, every three months. Uh, we have a new, I have the new grading come through and I work it out for everybody. So then we have basically a grade three fish and grade three fish is on the verge of being unsustainable. So you should only use it every now and again. And with a grade three fish, basically we put that onto our, uh, restaurant menus because our restaurant menus basically change every week so it's a very small amount of fish that we're using for a week and then it goes and then we have grade four which is unsustainable which we don't use any of those sorts of fish we have grade five which is basically endangered and we don't use any of those fish either so we the main crocs of what we use is grade one and two yeah and we'll alternate with grade one and two so basically on grade one let's say there's grade one and two there might be place and lemon sole yeah dabs there might be basically witch sole 
uh, all of those will be aggressive grade one or two. And then we'll look at it and the guys, the fishmongers will basically go and they'll, they'll know which that we want a flat fish. So rather than me order lemon soles, we're ordering a flat fish for flat fish lessons. And they will look at the one with the best price at the moment, right? The best quality and that fits within the remits of basically our sustainability one or two. And then they'll buy that fish for me and send it to me. Yeah. So we're always working in tandem with sometimes there's a cost implication. Sometimes it's a little bit more expensive, but there is a cost implication basically when you're working with, you know, trying to be sustainable and basically buy that sort of product. Mm. So then we'll have that. And then for the restaurants, normally we work a week or two in advance on our restaurants. So basically the guys will come to me and say to me, all right, what's good at the moment? What's available? What's plentiful? You know, what's in season? Because I mean, not a lot of people realize that basically, you know, fish are in season. You know, there are seasons for fish at the moment. I mean, flatfish are full of quite a lot of row at the moment. Yeah. And they're not particularly good quality. Although I must admit, I had some phenomenal lemon soles through uh, last week, which were really, really good quality. So yeah, as we work in tandem with them as to what we buy. When we buy, we're buying, we buy a lot of frozen at sea as well. I mean, a lot of people, you know, to a lot of chefs, frozen at sea is a bit of a sort of like a, a bad word. You know, anything that's frozen has got to be rubbish, you know, and, and it's not like that. You know, frozen at sea product is basically fished, you know, basically frozen within less than sort of like half an hour, an hour of it of being caught. And because they're QFI frozen but on the boats, the quality of the fish is great. You know, when you've got these little shatter packs, which you pull open and the fish uh, fall out. And as long as you basically put those in and you uh, defrost them properly, in other words, temper them um, with boxes of little holes that sit like that. So the, the water can percolate down through to the bottom. And the fish stays out of the water. The quality of those fish is fantastic. We have some phenomenal fish that comes from uh, from Norway, which is basically like that. You know, some really good quality QFI frozen at sea cod and haddock. Yeah, really great for products. And so we'll use a lot of that and we'll basically teach kids that, you know, look at the quality and we'll, we'll say to the kids, right, let's get some out. Let's prep some, let's cook some, right? And let's cook some fresh fish and let's taste it. And, you know, taste it and you tell us which you think's which. You know, we don't tell them. And a lot of them will get it wrong. You know, and our customers don't, you know, will not know. We, we're quite proud to put it onto the menu, basically, you know, frozen at sea, mm. you know, on that sort of side. Sorry to interrupt, but a quick word to give special mention to our sponsor, Rotacloud, without whom this podcast wouldn't even be possible. With thousands of customers worldwide, Rotacloud is already saving businesses like yours hundreds of hours of staffing-related admin every year. It's been described by its users as everything from a lifesaver to an absolute no-brainer, with one customer even saying that they'd rather stick forks in their eyes than go back to doing their rotas the old-fashioned way. If you're ready to take the pain out of people management, I highly recommend heading over to rotacloud.com forward slash fill to sign up for your free 30-day trial and see how Rotacloud can benefit your business. Now let's get back to it. So depending on what time of year it is, depending on basically the seasons are, it's difficult to sort of, if I were to turn around and say to you, yeah, yeah, you know, hake is, uh, is a great, you know, sustainable fish. And, you know, there is quite a lot of hake about. But at certain times of the year, that will drop off, you know, and there won't be a lot of hake about. And everybody's sort of moving around looking for hake. And then you're creating a problem by basically going buying that hake. You know, uh, you know to give you an example, in, you know, getting away from fish in, with, with birds, um, grey partridges, we won't use grey partridges at the college. And great, great partridges basically in this country used to be in massive numbers basically before the Second World War. And then what happened is after the Second World War, the government basically encouraged everybody to grow food and they encouraged the farmers to basically from great big fields to having little fields. So from little fields to having great big fields the other way around. And uh, they grubbed out all of their, their hedgerows. And that's where this bird would lay its eggs, would have its all its youngsters, where it would find insects and stuff like that. And there was big populations of basically grey partridge. Phenomenal bird. You know, English partridge, absolutely fantastic. 
But when they did all of that and they started using chemicals and DDT and all that sort of stuff, it devastated the great partridge population in the UK to the point that it's never really recovered. I mean, now we're getting really good numbers starting to come back in, but we won't use them because we do not consider it to be a sustainable option or a bird that's sustainable at the moment. If you live in Norfolk and you have a restaurant in Norfolk and there, you know, you have birds that are being shot around the corner, by all means, use that product because it's around the corner from you mm. and it makes sense to use it. But don't bring it here you know, to London, if you like, and then start showing everybody it and professing how fantastic it is because all you want to do is loads of other people that want it and then they create even more of a sustainability problem. Yeah. You know, so that's what that's what we try to do is basically educate, you know, with what they should and shouldn't be using like that. And same with the fish. I mean, the fish, you know, when I first started basically setting all of the, uh, implementing all of the sustainability on the fish at the college, we had quite a lot of problems with it because there were lecturers that were used to getting what they wanted and not being questioned. And out in the industry, I could see the same thing sort of happening out in the industry. But we work around that. You know, but people had to understand that we, I'd have lecturers come to me and sort of turn around and say to me, I want to order some um, strawberry grouper, for want of a better word, right? Strawberry groupers, right? We're going to order strawberry groupers. And uh, and you say, well, you can't. It's a sort of like an Asian fish. Basically, we don't have a lot of them coming in. It's basically sustainability levels. It's got loads of mile, air miles on it. It's not really something we should be buying. So we're not going to do them now yeah you have to use something else instead and then they kick up a fuss about it and they say oh look well, i only want one because i want to show my class one i said yeah but you're taking one fish and then you're showing 16 students how fantastic this fish is and all of them were going to work in different places which are all going to go i want that mm. and you're going to create 16 people that want that because you've only got one because it's it must be so rare and that's what happens with chefs isn't it we we love things that are rare yeah on a very few occasions do you find something that's rare and sustainable you know um so rare for a reason i guess yeah well the only thing i've ever found actually which 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 was was a bit funny was um white salmon and not a lot of people ever heard about white salmon it's also called troll salmon in america and white salmon is a um a king salmon that it's a wild fish um that has lost the ability to basically process the color the the color in the food that it eats so when you fillet it it's actually completely white so right. there is no red color from the crustaceans that it's eating. And it's, uh, well, not the first time I ever saw it, I was like completely sort of thrown back by it because I'd never seen it. It's either white or it's like marbled um, with this sort of like reddish color through it. And uh, when you eat it, it's quite buttery. It's it's, it's really fatty. Um, it's a very nice fish to eat. And it's sort of when they come out the sea, the fishermen get paid a particular price for, for king salmon. But when they're filleted and they found out they're white salmon, I think it's four times the price. Right. You know, and it's rare, but you never know when you're getting one because you catch you could catch hundred of them not have one. So it's only when one turns up that it's it they're very sustainable fish. But yeah, you know, one turns up and it's a white one. So that's mm. the only time we ever come across something that's really rare and sustainable. Right. So sure, I I always I always learn something in your company. I've only met you really once before. Um, we were lucky enough to have dinner at uh, Cyrus Toddy Wallace's place yep. on the back of the HRC event and. I could have sat and listened to you all night talk about food generally, just because there's a lot of things that I think that just even the general population probably should know, but but don't know. Because you're, I think a lot of times it's more convenient just to do what you've always done, right? And go and have go and get that fish that you normally get from your supermarket uh, and all of that and not know anything about where it's come from. Yeah, so I mean, it highlights to me that there's a greater need, even beyond the education within hospitality itself there's a greater need beyond that 
in the food chain. I think with with students, and I think I said this to you on the night when we were at Cyrus's. There's a great saying that I heard. I once, did have a well. couple of beers, but I don't know if I retained it. <laughs> and I, I I I say it to my students all the time: being a chef, when you get to the level where basically you start putting menus together and all that sort of stuff, I said you need to have an inquiring mind. You need to want to understand what your food is. I said, don't be the chef just get, that says, oh, just give me it and I'll cook it. I'll make it look absolutely beautiful on the plate. I'll make it taste fantastic and give it to the diners. No, I said, understand your, pro- your product. Understand the preparation of your product. Understand about how special it is. Respect it. Yeah. And then do all that other stuff as well. That other stuff's a given. You can do that. But all of the background of that thing, make a, make a, make a case for your product. Um, you make the case. Don't have anybody else tell you the case. I said, like, what you want to do is you, you want to be a goat, not a sheep. And I, I've, I've said to the kids, and, and, and they sort of look at you, they're like, what do you mean by the goat and the sheep? I said, right. I said, if you've got a trader of sheep and you open the door and you let them out into the field, one goes out and they all follow them. Even if it's they follow, if they, they go off the edge of a cliff, they'll all follow each other because they're sheep. They said, and that's the majority of people in supermarkets. They are led by the supermarket through its advertising through its basically bread baking at the back of the store, right, to you to go to buy the bread, and through its basically you know, funneling into an area of the supermarket that looks like a garden because it's all green, and yet the rest of the supermarkets are white, you know, to make you feel more sort of like green and with vegetables and sort of that sort of thing. That they are, they're, they're herding you like sheep to buy stuff. Mm. But if you've got a trailer full of goats and you open the door, they all go different ways. They're all independent. They do what they want to do, not what the, the status quo is doing. And that's what you should do as a chef is basically you should understand as much of it as you can. Right. And, and, you know, go and ask questions, go and find out where it comes from, go and find out why they're saying it's so good. Yeah. Understand that. And, and sometimes ask the questions that might hurt, you know, to basically, you know, and, and it, they might find a bit offensive, but you're only asking because you want to be prepared and you want to understand, you want to give your customers the best and you want to be basically using the best. Yeah. A lot of this country abroad, I think in a lot of other countries, people ask a lot more questions about their food and they have a much, especially in Spain, Italy, France, all those sorts of places, they have a much closer tie to the countryside and food than we have in this country. Yeah. We don't have that. tie. we've become a very sort of like um, technology advanced sort of living in cities, basically sort of, you know, really away from our food and food production. Um, there's a lot of foodies in this country, right? And a lot of those really understand food, but there's a lot of people that, I heard once in a, in a PR thing that I went to a PR company and they said, you have two types of people in this country. He said, you have the people that are basically interested in their food and love to eat really great food. And then you have the people that are called refuelers that all they want to do is they eat to basically stay alive. They don't care about what they eat. And they just, and, and you know, in our industry, we shouldn't be that. We should yeah. never, ever be that sort of, if, if you, if that's how you think and in, in your job, then get out of it quickly and do something else. Yeah, yeah, don't come and work with food. Well, I mean, it sounds like there is an awful lot more to your role than lecturing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, like, yeah. I mean, you, you almost have to be the, the font of all knowledge. And I guess you equally, that means that you can't stay still. You've, you can't just rest on the information that you've got now because tomorrow that information right. could be dead. Yep. No, definitely. I mean, I, I set myself right from the beginning the thing about the college, what it's allowed me to do is allowed me to basically to be that chef that understands about all different things. Um, I've been on quite a lot of trips around the world. I mean, with Alaskan Seafoods, I went out to Alaska. I wrote an educational guide basically for colleges on the uh, sustainability setup of Alaskan salmon, which is a very sort of like it's it sort of set up on a 24 hour basis. 
Whereas in this country, most of our sustainability is set up on the you know last year's fishing quotas, right? And you know the diversity of food that's come out of the sea sort of many months ago. We're in Alaska, basically. They sort of fish today. Tomorrow they have a conference and look at basically all their data and they decide whether they fish the next day or not. You know, and right. so I when I went out, so there, it can be done. Yeah, when I went out, that was uh, that is. I mean, that's a whole podcast by itself. That's a fantastic. <laughs> I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, I, I went there years ago, and even now, I mean, there must even be more technology advanced than I was then. But I mean, it's it's incredible what they do, uh, and to for it to remain as sustainable as it has, and with their, their managers saying they're managing sustainability for especially for red sockeye salmon, not only for what they take, but also wildlife you know, reproduction of basically fish, you know, they're managing it on all those sorts of sides to ensure there's enough to go around for everybody and nobody's starving. You know, mm. you, you can't go in there and basically take sort of like thousands of salmon out of the sea and then basically further up the stream, like you've got bears and, you know, wolves and, and eagles and all that sort of stuff, right? The whole ecology of it that's built off the back of the salmon all dying because there's not enough salmon. Yeah. You know? So, so that was, that was incredible. I mean, I've been to Italy, uh, uh, Parma ham, parmesan. I've been to Spain to basically look at Iberico pork production um, and Rioja region for the wines. Um, I've, I've been to quite a few places to basically look at that and to find out the background on produce, which then we've used as learning tools back at the college. You know, we, we use that as learning tools to teach our kids about it. And we're very finicky about who we work with because we want to look and use the best produce. So hence, one of my other roles at the college is basically all the sponsorship side of the college. So we obviously we're we're producing the chef, the um the future chefs of tomorrow the guys yeah. that basically are going to be spending money with different companies and basically buying kit and buying ingredients and so what we try to do is basically sponsors who have products that we believe in and we want to work with we use those products basically with what we do at the college basically to be able to show our kids a really good quality product so hence basically I, I try to find out as much as I can about produce and all that sort of stuff and you know I've got quite a big remit there yeah. God, yeah, absolutely, and I think what I love about it as well is that you've kind of, you've definitely transformed it from being that job that you go to to die in, as <laughs> as you were discussing, into something that I would imagine if somebody's listening to this and they've got a bit of a, a chef background and and they're you're really really interest interested in the provenance of food, they're probably listening to this because I'm listening to this as you're talking, thinking, God, I want to do that. That's amazing. I'm not even a chef. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I I think it's it's great, and and equally, I think it, that had to change because you can't you can't create classrooms full of uninspiring content, no. can you? I mean, and and hope that you are churning out the next generation of students who who yeah. give a monkeys about the industry, who give a monkeys about where their food is coming from. The integrity and the quality of the uh, of the education that students receives is down to basically the lecturers that are there and the knowledge of the lecturers that are there. <clears throat> about sort of like six seven years ago i started a thing at the college called the trainer trainer program and because we were getting lots of sponsors that we were working with i spoke to some of the sponsors and said look it's great if we take kids out on on visits for them to see products brilliant for them to understand that sort of thing but the only problem happens is that then that that whole cohort of kids leave and they take the knowledge with them i said what if we start taking a bunch of lecturers out and basically get them to understand so giving them cpd if you like so they basically really understanding of basically the quality of different individual products or places and so that they can then put that into teaching materials that they can use back at college. And we've done quite a few of these trips. So basically with the Sea Fish Authority, the first year we did it, we went to Newlyn in Cornwall and we looked at um, 
you know, uh, fish quotas, how they worked so that we could understand it better. We looked at the market. We went to visit chefs that basically cook with the products. We went to understand basically sustainability levels of different products. We looked at how they rebranded in Cornwall the Cornish Pilchard to become the Cornish Sardine. Yeah, and all of the health benefits and everything and how that, what was, what drove that. Yeah, so we went to understand all that. The following year, we went to uh, Wales and we looked at aquaculture and it was basically um, onshore and uh, a sort of different sort of offshore aquaculture. One was seeded mussels, um, which are taken and basically seeded in the Menai Strait. So we looked at that and we looked at purification and all that sort of thing. And then we also looked at a sea bass farm, um, which was in basically in Anglesey, which actually is not there anymore. And it was offshore, so basically you looked at all the water purification side of it, the, what they were doing with the water and the effluents and all that sort of stuff. And in the third year, we actually went to Norway, the Norwegian seafood guys who we worked very closely with. They wanted to take us out and basically look at Norwegian fjord trout, um, which was a new fish that was coming onto basically the market. It's quite a large trout, and they breed them in very st uh, low stock densities, um, so basically it's better farming quality of food that they feed them is different um, they, we looked at basically how they combat sea lice and the way the whole farming system set up we looked at uh, cod and sustainability levels of cod because over there they had some of the most sustainable cod in the world and looked at the, uh, the production of bacalao um, out there so we went out and did all of that sort of side you know we went to a, a Norwegian college the following year after that I think we went to Spain and we did a gastronomical tour of Spain basically looking at Iberico production um, cheeses we then looked at Melca Madrid um, we looked at wines we looked at tin produce which is basically in this country we consider tin produce to be basically a second rate product in yeah. Spain it's some of the most expensive products that you can possibly buy right and yeah. with good thing because we were tasting these these you know canned fish and stuff which was like incredible absolutely incredible you know so yeah we, we looked at all of that that sort of stuff and we've done that over quite a few years we're basically taking the student the lecturers out and through that our educational materials and our ability to speak to the students has become sort of bigger and better now we 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 will have equipment at the college basically a lot you now sometimes way ahead of what people have got outside and a lot of the uh, the uh, the chefs that come into us you know that come and do the examinations they'll come in and they'll go right what have you got what are you doing in their butchery? You know, they'll come and have a look at my smoking units and ask me how I'm using them. And, you know, Simon Young at the um, the Rosewood Hotel, I mean, he's he's had smokers now for quite a few years. And uh, I've done quite a few of the training stuff for basically his staff with the smokers. And, you know, it's something that he wanted to get. And he saw at my place and he went, right, we're going to use these at the, at the hotel. And they've made some great stuff out of it. And we've got all of that sort of thing. Water baths. And, you know, we were using water baths way before a lot of other people were using them. Some produce. Scray cod. We be uh, Norwegian scrape cod. We were using Norwegian crow scrape cod before any other college in the country was using it. And when Michelle Rue and Simon Holston started working with Norwegian seafoods, we were already using scrape cod. Yeah, and we were sort of one of the few bunches that really, really understood the fish so that we could explain to our kids, this is what this fish is. And we're lucky enough that Norwegian seafoods sort of supply scrape cod to us every year so that we can put it on our menus in the scrape season. And the kids can taste it, they can see it, they can understand about the background of it and the quality points about scrape cod and sustainability. So they can then, as they go out into the industry, if that product's still available for them, they understand the background of it. Yeah. So, yeah, so a lot of that is what we try to do. We try to keep ahead. I mean, a lot of the curing stuff that I do um, within the, the larder, aging, you know, we never had a fridge age up. Now we've got a fridge aging. Uh, you know, we age all our own beef through Butelar, and we do English Rose Veal as well as basically uh, Aberdeen Angus and Herefords. And we age our full four ribs and our sirloins and sometimes rumps. 
and they go onto our menus. We do a Coke the birth for two people, basically in the main restaurant in the brasserie, you know, um, all that sort of stuff. The aging process, you know, we can, our kids can understand it because the, the beef comes in, they weigh it, they put a little ticket on it saying what it is and basically how much it weighs. We put it in there for basically six days. We take it out after six days. We weigh it again. We look at the differences between the two and I explain to them what's happening. We leave it a little bit longer. You know, they come out of 30 days and we weigh it again. And we'll look, we'll see that basically it's, it's lost less weight over the last sort of like two, three weeks than it did in the first week. And we explain to them why. You know, we'll make our bacon and our ham and we break down a pig. Before, when, when you used to do pork and you used to do gammon, if you got a piece of gammon and kids were told, you oh, this is a piece of gammon, no one explained to them how a gammon was put, how, where a gammon came from or what part of the animal it was or what is a gammon. It, there's, there's three stages to a piece of ham. The first one is basically the raw leg of pork. Yeah, which is a leg of pork. And when you cure it, it then becomes a gammon. And when you cook it, it then becomes a ham. You know, it's all the same joint, but it different names. Different I didn't things. know that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, where belly, where, yeah, the, the, one of the nicest lessons I do is I do a development lesson for the third years. And we do a pig where we break down a pig. And I'll take a middle of pork out and I'll take the belly off the middle of the pork. And then I'll take all the bones out, show them all the bones out. And then I'll cut it in half and I'll show them the end of it. And they look at it and I go, see that? And I went, oh, that's streaky bacon. And that's where it comes from. And it's like that little cling, you know, that yeah. little light that basically comes out. And then you cut the loin in half once you've taken it off the bone. And you show them that. I go, oh, my God, that's back bacon. And they understand then where it's come from because you're physically showing them something. Mm-hmm. You know? And that that's that's important. And in those development lessons, we we try to go as far back as possible. So with I do one. We're the only college in the UK that has a deer larder. So we have a, a deer larder that can hold basically anything up to about um, nine carcasses of venison, whole, heads on, feet on, the lot, yeah, in there. And we do about anything between sort of 20 and 30 carcasses a year through that supply, through our game dealer, and all sponsored through the game dealer, so sponsored through Highland Game. And what we do is we get, for each one of the third year development classes, I get a whole, whole animal comes in, it's a whole deer, normally it's a roe deer, and it'll be head on, feet on, it's just grollocks. And then we'll show them a film about field to table, We'll bring this animal out. We'll explain everything from basically why the animal was chosen, different animals which we choose, which ones you're going to choose to harvest. We'll explain to them about bleeding, about basically uh, fridge temperatures or fridge protocols, so basically what happens in the fridge and for how long you hold it. We'll explain about basically skinning the animal, taking the head off, taking the feet off, explain about different bits of that. And then we'll break down a whole carcass. But what we'll do is we're breaking down that carcass is you'll get them to work out the cost implications of the carcass. How much did the carcass cost? How much did all different parts of that carcass cost? And how much money are we making on the carcass? You know, on a roe deer, which basically a whole roe deer carcass will probably cost you about 70 or 80 quid, we make 1,200 pounds on a roe deer carcass. Yeah, on a something like a fallow deer or a red deer, you can make anything, depending on the size of the animal, up to about two or 3,000 pounds. You know, if you work it properly. Yeah understands what you're doing with it and this but you see because chefs are great auditory and tactile learners they understand it because you're showing them it you know you're putting it in front of them and you go look look this is our oh right yeah i understand where that bit comes from now whereas before it always used to be textbooks and death by powerpoint and all that sort of stuff well we, we we're getting them involved and in showing them something you know yeah, but also uh, you're giving them tools for. I mean, that, look at the situation we find ourselves in in the uh, out in the the wide world at the moment with cost of stuff rising and all of that. You give them the skills to be able to put together something like that. You know, if you're ever at the helm in a restaurant and you're responsible for your food costs and things like that, then you know these are the things that help you win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, you, like we were saying, I mean, you, you always see where there's a recession going on because the chef basically all goes on to cheaper cuts. Yeah. And then those cheaper cuts all of, all of a sudden become very expensive cuts. I, I remember. <laughs> I remember uh, uh, pork belly once upon a time was very cheap. And oh, not... ox cheeks. Yeah. Ox cheeks, another one. You know, yeah. throw away a bit of food. Yeah. And all of a sudden, right, everybody wants them. <laughs> yeah. Lamb shanks. That's another one. <clears throat> yep. Another one. Yeah. 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 But um, great. Well, I mean, look, I, I could talk to you about all this forever. Uh, in fact, but we don't have forever. So I, I'm going to move it on because I, I do want to talk to you about a couple of things before I let you get on your way. We have to talk about game because yeah. you, you are, you've you developed a, a reputation for being something of a, and I've been wanting to use this phrase, a game master. <laughs> uh, how, how did that come about? How did you end up? Is that just something that you've just, you found a, a passion and you've just pursued it um again it was a bit of an accident i, I um i've always been a lover of the natural world and understand the natural world and um i i found myself when i was at college drawn to books because obviously we didn't have internet back then sounds really old doesn't it i, found yeah, really old. No, no, no. <laughs> I remember, I remember the time before internet as well it weren't that long ago kids um <laughs> but yeah, I was. I always found myself drawn to books that had information about unusual meats, you know, un- unusual ways of cooking stuff. Um, I was always drawn to that, to basically reading about it. And game was this thing that was very unusual, but it seemed to be sort of stuck in back in the Middle Ages. You know, the, the, the recipes hadn't really moved on, and so I saw it as a bit of a sort of a challenge. I mean, I, I if you take a sirloin and you cook a sirloin, you know, steak is a steak is a steak. But okay, yeah, you have all these different breeds of cattle. You have wagyu and all that sort of stuff, which is going to be different flavors and nothing. But it's still a steak. But when it comes to game, you have like over seventeen different basically bird species in the UK, and they're all different. They're mm-hmm. all different, and they all have their challenges. And as a chef, sometimes that's nice, you know, to be challenged with something that's going to be a little bit difficult to cook because you need to understand it better to cook it. Yeah. Whereas basically, if you're told to cook a steak, you know, you know, how you're going to cook it and to the degree you're going to cook it. So that that's the sort of where it came from that I I'm also a falconer. So basically, um, I'm a deer stalker as well. I fly birds of prey. So basically, I have a I have peregrines and, and goshawks. And it's the one time we can talk about stalking without getting put in jail. <laughs> yeah. Don't go to America and tell them you're a stalker. Yeah, yeah. That, that doesn't bode <laughs> well. Yeah, I, I, I fell into that hole. Um. But yeah, I, I so basically I had this uh, ability to take the product that I was that I'd harvested and taking all the way through to its preparation and then its cooking and how best to show it all off and under, the understanding of the whole thing, which there were very few chefs at the time. I mean, I think at the time sort of Mike Robinson was doing it. Yeah, who's he's a buddy of mine. And basically, we did quite a lot of work together. Um, people like that. There was very few other people, and you know, and later on, people came on board that started doing that sort of stuff. But yeah, that that was how that started to happen. To have an understanding, and obviously because I'm Spanish, you know that my Spanish roots, basically my uncles and aunties, all basically the game was quite a big thing. It's a big, you know, real, you know, delicacy out in Spain. Lots of people basically cook it, so that's why, yeah, I I started doing it, yeah, really. And then all of a sudden, I did say to me once that basically, you know, all of a sudden I had more knowledge about it than a lot of other people, and I didn't really understand why. I thought everybody knew the stuff that I knew. Yeah, and well, and then you took that passion, and you've uh, you've also written some books on the matter yeah yeah yeah. well that that was um that was basically again a bit of an accident everything's been that accident in my life but yeah but i, I like that i kind of <laughs> that, that means that you've just been i suppose alert to opportunity as opposed to having a yeah. a grand plan uh, as to how yeah, it's yeah. all going to end up 
Yeah, no, I, I can't. I can't do that. I can't plan ahead like that too much. The books all started because I met Phil Vickery, the chef, not the rugby player. Um, yeah. Phil, no, slightly Phil, different sized gentleman. Yeah, Phil loves that sort of stuff as well. He just written a book called Britain, the cookbook, and he'd done it with a, a guy who's a very, very dear friend of mine now, um, phenomenal food photographer, a guy called Steve Lee. And Steve um, had worked with him on this book and they'd gone all around the UK, basically looking at different foods from different parts of the country and telling the story of it. And Steve's son wanted to be a chef. So he basically he applied for Westminster. Phil asked if he could give him my number. So uh, he did and contacted me and he came into one of my game seminars that we do every year at the college. We have two game seminars at the college, all on game, and it, which includes lunch, one in November and one in January. And so Steve came on to one of them and afterwards he sort of said to me, have you ever thought about writing a book? I said, well, I said, I have, but I'm, I'm partially dyslexic. So, you know, that's a problem to me. He said, well, there's computers nowadays, you know, you don't have to worry about that and you can get an editor. So uh, uh, he said to me, let's, let's do some stuff together. See if we can do it. So we went out and did a couple of shoots where we were basically doing, he was photographing me doing stuff. And then we had this idea of putting the book together. It was the all encompassing book on game and we called it Fur and Feathers and Pretty much after we started a couple of years in, we sort of said to ourselves, you know, if we want to do this right, we can't have it all in one book because it would be about that thick. You know, it's just incredible. So what we did is we split them into books and three books and we produced Venison, which was the first one. Uh, It took eight years to do. Uh, Me and Steve went out. We went through about six different publishers because all the publishers wanted to stifle us and what we wanted to do. We had a very set idea of what we wanted to do um, as an educational piece. And also we want it to be for chefs. We wanted it to be for students. We wanted it to be for the man on the, on the ring. We didn't want to take loads of pictures of dead things, right? Like other people had done. We wanted to basically show the animals alive and be very respectful about it all the way we wrote it. And also to come up with new ideas and also have people who believed in the product. It was such a good product that they wanted to be in the book. So we had the champions of venison, some very well-known chefs that are in the book as well. And some of my ex-students that learned about game from me, you know, that are in there. And it took it took us eight years. We finally found a publisher, Merlin Unwin Books, basically published them, and um, Venison came out, and it was very well received. I mean, yeah, it, it's done really well. It's still doing really well. It's quite a big book. You know, it's beautiful photography. I mean, Steve's photography is just like oh, I love a bit like that. I mean, he's brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant. And a lot of the time, when you're out in the fields with him, all you do is just forget he's there, and he will take the most stunning photographs, and he sees stuff that you won't see. Food photography is a master at that anyway. You know, there's, I don't think there's anybody that basically does it as well as he does. I mean, he just he just loves it. He's got a real passion for it. And we've become very, very good friends over the years. Very, very good friends. And then we finished Venison. And before we finished Venison, we started taking photographs and started going out for Feathers. Feathers took four years. And Feathers, again, phenomenal book. You know, it's, it's done really well. Again, loads of really well-known chefs. I mean, you've got the likes of Michelle Rue, Brian Turner, Ben Tish, you know, uh, Anna Haig, you know, loads of really well-known great chefs who are friends of mine that I've worked with over the years. And I've said to them, would you mind, would you mind doing it? Yeah, no problem. They've turned up at the studio and they've done their dishes, you know, because of that. Mm. Um, and some great students, some students that are, you know, they're, they're really well-known now. Some of those students, basically, they? you know, people like Ben Ben Murphy, Celine Kazim, you know, all those sorts of guys, Will Chalila. All those guys are all in the book Gosh, as well. you are. So this yeah. is really great. And, it, and it's produced really good. And they've done, I think it's just under 40,000 books worldwide. So they've become both of our bestsellers. Um, and now we're just starting with the last one, which is uh, Fur, which would be Rabbit, Hares, Wild Boar, and then we're revisiting Venison in the last book. Right. 
Exciting times. That's amazing. Fantastic. Well, I do love a, 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 sounds like a coffee table type book. Oh, it is. It, it's a, but I say to everybody, it's not a recipe book. It's a storybook uh, telling the story of game right from the beginning to the end. And it's, and it's, 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 remember what I said at the beginning about this thing where some people have preconceived ideas about a product or a, uh, an ingredient and then they cut because that's what they've been told and they can't see beyond it. Mm. Well, game can be one of these things that can be really, really, you know, people argue about it a lot. But the way we laid it out in the book is I tried to explain everything to everybody and I tried to explain it in terms that basically would offend nobody. So that when you read the book from cover to cover, it tells the story of game, its harvest, it's each individual animal. And then at the end of it, it explains basically why we do it. You know, why do we manage deer herds? Why do we basically need to basically uh, have birds, you know, basically game birds and that sort of thing? What would happen to the habitats if we didn't have them? How those habitats basically help the environment? And it's explaining it with no bullshit. It's just explanation of what it is. And I say to everybody, it's not a recipe book. Don't read. You read it like a book first. And then use it as a recipe book because by then you will have learned all about it and the background and the province of it and what game's about. Yeah, absolutely. I I think I I need to. I'm going to end up with about twelve hundred coffee tables in my house. I think with all the <laughs> uh, coffee table books that I, uh, I I have or want. But no, that's great. There is a there's another question I really wanted to ask you. I I don't even know if you can answer this, but it just sparked my interest a little bit because you worked at the House of Commons. Any stories from the House of Commons that you can share with us? Uh, not really. I mean, I uh, I, I will say there's a funny one with the all the chefs at House of Commons are quite a comical bunch. And I remember once when I first started, a, a playing tricks on the commies is always like a a great thing. And and one of the guys that basically he he shall remain nameless who it was, but um, they said to this commie, we had a a roasting uh, area. So basically within the members part of the dining room, so it's the members and the strangers. So the members is where all the MPs eat. And in the members, there is an area where there's a sort of cold buffet where they had sliced smoked salmon, salads and all that sort of stuff. And there'd be a, a hot, two hot dishes on there, fish and the meat, which they could basically come in, take and run off with it. Then there'd be a carving station, which would be, I think once a week, they'd have a carving station with a particular carved meat on it. And you, the commies would have to take uh, meat out to the carving station and also take vegetables and roast potatoes and all that sort of stuff out to the carving station. And then... Um, one of the guys they sent out there and they said to him, when you go out, he said, um, you need to bow to the MPs um, when you take out the food. And so he went out and he, he was holding onto this tray. And of course, an MP came out and he bowed to the MP. And then he, he sort of, he said, don't, and they said to him, don't turn your back on the MPs. So he's bowing like that as he's going through, he's gone up, you know, he's, he's sort of like trying not to turn his back on any MPs, giving the food over. And then they told him that as he walked out, he's to bow to the MPs as well. So he's walking out with nothing and just bowing to the MPs. Oh, and he did it about six or seven times until basically everybody was just pissing themselves in the kitchen laughing and he worked out why. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, well, that's kind of that's a rites of passage story, isn't it, really? I mean, when, once you once you can take a joke, you're, <laughs> you're part of the team for sure. Oh, um, yeah. I think everybody could probably recount either when they've been the victim of uh, su- such humor or uh, whether they've dished it out but it is yeah, yeah, um... no, def- definitely I mean, and the place itself is uh, quite iconic i i did the um i remember one of my claims to fame is on the night of when margaret thatcher got deposed um i did the main course for margaret thatcher for heseltine and also for john major right uh, they were all in the restaurant at the, at the same time right god what an opportunity that was no sorry different, <laughs> different podcast for that one um <laughs> did you cook game uh, no, 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 no. I, I, can't, I couldn't even tell you what they ate. I, I, I can't remember. I just remember basically doing it. But um, right. no, 
Well, they all lived. Anyway, so <laughs> that, that was good. Um, excellent. Well, look, thank you so much for, for your time and education. Uh, as I say, I, th- this feels a little bit indulgent for me, this one, because um, I could just talk to you about food all day long. But one c- final question before I let you get on your way. What three reasons would you give to somebody who was uh, thinking about coming into hospitality as to why they should come and join us? Um, I think it's a very fulfilling career, more so now than it has ever been. Um, there are loads of facets to the to the career as well, basically, that there weren't before. I mean, before, you know, you're working as a chef, you're working as a chef. Now, you know, there's basically food styling, food development, you know, nutritional side of it. I mean, there's, there's so many things that basically you can work with within the hospitality industry on basically on food and hospitality. Um, I think you meet some great people along the way. You meet some fantastic mentors that will stay with you and they'll stay through life whole, you know, basically uh, friends for the rest of your life. I also think that basically if you have a passion for it, they always say that basically the best jobs are the ones where you go to work, but you're not working. Mm. You know, basically you, you just go to work every day. You love it. You love what you do. And therefore, because you're loving what you do, it's it's not a, an effort, you know. And for me, my job is like that. You know, when I worked at the Commons, when I worked outside in the industry, every day was a learning day. You know, every day was basically something new. And even now, everything's a learning day. Sometimes my students even basically come to me with stuff, right, that I didn't know. You know, and I'll, I'll, I'll quiz them about it and try and learn as much as possible and then do a load of homework on it afterwards. But, yeah, yeah. it's, uh, it's it, no two days will ever be the same, you know, in the hospitality industry. Well, no, yeah. those two days should be the same. Yeah, you should be uh, you should be doing lots of different stuff and learning, and push yourselves. You know, within the industry, you know, get to places, learn as much as you can, move on somewhere else. Don't be afraid to move on. You know, uh, you, you can have all of the doubts like I had, yeah, but then take the jump. You know, take 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 the risk and take the risk while you're still young and you haven't got a mortgage. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but now it's a, it's a it's a phenomenal industry. You know, and even you know, even the, my part of the industry, basically teaching, if they can get into that. I mean, sometimes it's great for chefs once they've been out in the industry for a few years, like some of the guys that work with us, um, they have been out in the industry, left the industry, and now come back to what we do. And they have so much to offer to the kids. You know, they've so much because the kids will basically look at us as we've been in there a little while and they start looking at us as dinosaurs that we don't understand the industry. But when you've got somebody that's fresh and come in who's just been out there, he's telling them all the same stories as I'm telling them. Yeah, things ain't changed that much, you know, yeah. and basically the way we work outside. Being a lecturer is basically a lot more sometimes mentally demanding than physically, you know, um, on that. Whereas basically when you're out in the industry, it's more physically than mentally. You know, and sometimes with, as a lecturer, you need to understand and look at what the kids are doing. And you know, they take what you say as gospel, absolutely as gospel. I mean, I, I did a, a quick one just to sort of finish off. I did a lesson once where I, right at the beginning when I first went to the college and we were doing a fish and I was showing them all different batters of fish and I was taking a piece of fish and four or five different batters and showing them the batters. And then they all went away to go and do their fish and do their batters to present them to me in the first year. <clears throat> it's a do dem lesson. And then quite flippantly, I turned around and said to them, to garnish your fish, you can use basically a little wedge of lemon and said, so you can also do some deep fried parsley. So the first kid comes up to me, brings me the first lot of uh, fish and he's got this fish and there's a fish there. Lovely. It's on a little doily. It's got the lemon next to it. And there's this great big splodge of batter on top of it. I looked at it and I said, what's that? And he said, oh, it's the parsley. Well, I didn't tell them not to batter it. And so um, they battered the parsley. Yeah. You know, and this is where it is. This is like everything you say is gospel. Yeah. And if you said it, they're going to do it. Yeah. yeah. And then I went, no, 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 you don't do that. You just deep fry the parsley. And then all of a sudden there was 15 other little feet scurried away, right, to go yeah. and get rid of their battered parsley. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, but it, but it's yeah. I mean, it, it's it, my job is very worthwhile, and it's something that I think basically a lot of people, especially chefs, as they get older, if they've got something to give back, look to go into basically teaching. But teaching in the right places, there's some places basically that just you know stick to curriculum, and if you stick just to curriculum, do nothing else, um, it, yeah, it's, it's not as as fulfilling as what we do. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, Westminster Kingsway is the uh, at the uh, at the pinnacle of education as you quite rightly said at the, at the beginning it's now down to you to keep it there yeah fantastic if uh, if people want to reach out to you to learn more about what you do or just chew the fat about anything what's the best uh, method for them to instagram, do that instagram uh facebook um they can email me at the college if they want i mean uh, on instagram it's wild food boy on, on facebook it's wild food boy uh, it's jose luis suto um and then i'm also on twitter it's wild food boy again um there's wild food boy there. then yeah, they can they can contact me on any of those. Yeah, if they're interested in doing it, if there's any sponsors that basically want to look at work with us at the college, by all means, basically contact us on that. Um, and yeah, great, brilliant. Thank you very much for having me on, Phil. You're very very welcome. Good to chat to you. Yeah, Take care. Cheers. And there we have it. Have you ever heard anyone with more passion for food than Jose? What a fabulous career he's had so far, and yet another example of the type of career you can have in hospitality. We will, of course, be back next Wednesday at 8pm with another wonderful story from hospitality. But until then, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.